Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Linos Alexander Sicilianos. I am professor at the University of Athens at the Faculty of Law. And uh, since 2002, I am a member and actually a rapporteur of the UN Committee on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination. There are at least three good reasons to speak about the UN Convention on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination. The first reason is that today the Convention is quasi-universal. Since its adoption in 1965, the Convention has been ratified by 173 states. Almost all your respective countries are bound by this international instrument. The second reason is that in 2009, a big conference will take place at the United Nations office in Geneva, the so-called Review Conference on Racism, Racial Discrimination, Xenophobia and Related Intolerance an important occasion to reevaluate the achievements but also the magnitude of the problems in the field of racial discrimination. On the basis of my experience as a member of the UN Committee on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination, I can testify that a number of shortcomings persist in almost all countries. Discrimination based on race, national, ethnic origin or descent is still present almost everywhere in the world. The third reason justifying the topic of this lecture is that the whole of the UN human rights system is at a crossroads. The Human Rights Council began functioning recently, new human rights conventions entered into force, and the process of reform of the human rights treaty body system is underway. The main purpose of my presentation is to demonstrate the potential of the Convention, to highlight recent developments in its application, as well as to discuss the ongoing reforms of its methods of work and procedures. To do this, I refer to the scope of application of the Convention, to the substantive provisions of the Convention, and more briefly, to the methods of work and procedures of the Committee on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination. As far as the scope of application of the Convention, first of all, I was reading recently an essay by a well-known legal expert saying that after the end of apartheid in South Africa, the Convention has fulfilled its primary goal, an affirmation implying that the Convention has lost its main interest. It is true that when drafted back in 1965, the Convention was aiming primarily at the eradication of racial segregation and especially apartheid. Apartheid is mentioned explicitly both in preamble and in Article 3 of the Convention. However, the definition of discrimination given in Article 1 of the Convention goes far beyond apartheid. My submission is that ICERT, the International Convention on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination, is nowadays more relevant than ever and that it covers a broad range of discriminatory practices concerning hundreds of millions of people throughout the globe. Many of those practices have escalated in and, uh, in some cases, continue to provoke violence, armed conflicts, crimes against humanity, ethnocide, and even genocide. The cases of Rwanda and former Yugoslavia are striking examples of this kind. Apart from those tragic events, 
different forms of racial or ethnic discrimination and related intolerance affect large groups, including non-citizens, refugees, displaced persons, stateless persons, minorities, indigenous peoples, Dalits, etc. Most of those phenomena have been highlighted in Durban in 2001 during the World Conference Against Racism and Racial Discrimination. But the question is whether you adopt a restrictive view of the notion of racial discrimination or whether you expand the notion so as to cover discriminatory treatment of all those groups. The overall tendency in the practice of the Committee on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination is to progressively expand the scope of application of the Convention by way of interpretation of the definition contained in Article 1. Such tendency is perceived throughout its concluding observations, i.e. observations formulated on the basis of states' reports, but also through its general recommendations. In the 90s, the Committee has adopted two general recommendations on Article 1 of the Convention, as well as general recommendations on the applicability of the Convention to refugees, displaced persons and indigenous peoples. The general recommendation on the rights of indigenous populations, as it was said by that time, in 1997, affirmed explicitly that discrimination regarding indigenous peoples forms part of the scope of application of the Convention. And such approach has been conferred in a series of concluding observations concerning uh, the Nordic states, Latin American states, Australia, New Zealand, and a number of other states. In the same vein, one could mention the general recommendation on the discrimination against Roma, Sinti, adopted in the year 2000. Well, nowadays, the applicability of the Convention regarding Roma is widely accepted. Actually, it has never been contested that different forms of discrimination against Roma are discriminations based on ethnic origin, and thus prohibited by Article 1 of the Convention. The issue is present in almost all concluding observations of the Committee in respect of European states. One other issue concerning the scope of application of the Convention is the issue of the so-called double discrimination. Double discrimination is discrimination based simultaneously on two grounds mentioned in Article 1, for instance, national origin and ethnic origin, or on one ground mentioned in the Convention and another ground not explicitly mentioned in the Convention, such as gender or religion. Another traditional issue of concern is the issue of indirect discrimination. Indirect discrimination can result from an apparently neutral provision, criterion or practice which would put persons of a racial or ethnic origin at a particular disadvantage compared with other persons, for instance, in the field of employment, housing, etc. Article 1 of the Convention speaks about discrimination in effect, thus covering the so-called indirect discrimination. So this tendency to broadly apply Article 1 to largely conceive the notion of racial discrimination has been confirmed in recent practice of the Committee on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination and particularly in three 
general recommendations adopted respectively in 2002, 2004, and 2005. The first of those recommendations is General Recommendation 29 on dissent-based discrimination. This recommendation was adopted following a thematic debate, as we call it, with governments, NGOs, and independent experts of the United Nations system. The key issue was the interpretation of the notion of dissent in Article 1, Paragraph 1 of the Convention. One can adopt a restrictive interpretation, saying that dissent in the sense of that provision means racial dissent, in which case this provision would apply, for instance, to Americans of African or Asian descent. Well, those persons come in any case under the purview of Article 1 of the Convention. So if we adopt such restrictive view, then the notion of dissent in Article 1 ha would have no independent, no autonomous meaning. Furthermore, during negotiations, during the travaux preparatoire of the Convention, the ambassador of a very important state proposed the inclusion of the term dissent into the definition so as to cover the caste system, especially positive measures, affirmative action in favor of scheduled castes. For all those reasons, the committee believes that the term dissent has an autonomous meaning and it is not to be confused with race, national or ethnic origin. This position was expanded in General Recommendation 29. The term dissent has an autonomous meaning, that's what affirmed the committee on this occasion. It completes the other grounds of discrimination. Dissent-based discrimination includes discrimination against members of communities based on a rigid social stratification like castes and analogous systems. Of course, all those systems have their own specificities. So the committee prefer not to give a formal definition of the notion of caste. There are nevertheless some elements of definition, such as the impossibility to modify one's social hereditary status, the existence of imperative social restrictions, the prohibition of intermarriage, for instance, the existence of segregation, both in the public and in the private sphere, especially in the fields of housing, education, access to public places, etc. The impossibility to refuse hereditary professions and also the systematic exposure to different forms of degrading treatment. Well, this is not an exhaustive list, of course. There are differences from one system to the other, but the common denominator of all those systems is the existence of a very rigid social stratification combined with extremely discriminatory practices. Having said that, General Recommendation 29 formulates a number of concrete recommendations concerning the efficient enjoyment of civil and political rights as well as economic, social and cultural rights. May I uh, uh, underline the fact that caste and analogous system affect 250 million, 160 of, out of which in southeastern Asia. Another important general recommendation is general recommendation 30 on discrimination against non-citizens. I would like to refer here to two provisions of the Convention. Article 1, Para 2. Uh, 
says that uh, the convention shall not apply to distinctions, exclusions, restrictions or preferences made by a state party to this convention between citizens and non-citizens. And then the uh, uh, Article 1 goes on. Nothing in this convention may be interpreted as affecting in any way the legal provisions of state parties concerning nationality, citizenship or naturalization provided that such provisions do not discriminate against any particular nationality. So if we are going to stick to the letter of those provisions, and especially on Article 1, Para 2, then the Convention would be applicable to non-citizens only to a very limited extent. The whole issue of xenophobia would be excluded from the scope of application of the Convention. However, Article 1, Para 2 has to be read in conjunction with Article 5 of the Convention. Under this provision, states undertake to guarantee the right of everyone without distinction as to race, color, national or ethnic origin to equality before the law, notably in the enjoyment of a series of rights mentioned explicitly in this provision, Article 5. This is a non-exhaustive list of civil, political, economic, social and cultural rights. Which means that at least those rights which are mentioned explicitly in Article 5 have to be guaranteed irrespective of national origin. With a few well-established exceptions, of course, concerning, for instance, political rights, especially the right to vote and to be elected in national elections. Otherwise, to put it otherwise, Article 1, Para 2 of the Convention cannot be interpreted in isolation, but taking into account Article 5. Let me refer now to the practice of CERD in this respect. Well, CERD, the Committee on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination, systematically asks states to give uh, information about new citizens, non-citizens. A number of recommendations in the concluding observations concern non-citizens. And the states are including such information in their reports without invoking Article 1, Paras 2 and 3. Since 2002, I have participated in the examination of more than 100 state reports. Uh, no state has formally invoked an argument based on Article 1, Para 2 of the Convention. Furthermore, one of the principal issues of the Durban Conference was xenophobia. The same issue will be raised again in 2009 uh, in the course of the review conference on racism, racial discrimination, xenophobia and related intolerance. According to the Durban Declaration, xenophobia, that is different forms of discriminatory treatment against non-citizens, xenophobia in, uh, is one of the most important sources of contemporary racism. And the declaration continues to say that the International Convention on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination is the principal international instrument aiming at eliminating xenophobia and related intolerance. So there is no doubt that at least for the participants to the conference, that is for almost all states in the world, uh, the convention is applicable to non-citizens. And this is the correct interpretation, an interpretation which is in conformity with the object and purpose of the Convention, 
with the fact that the prohibition of racial discrimination is a peremptory rule of international law. This is an interpretation which is in conformity with Article 5 of the Convention, with the practice of the Committee and of its contracting parties. So General Recommendation 30 is based on all those elements. General Recommendation 30 makes a restrictive interpretation of paragraphs 2 and 3 of Article 1, underlines the importance of Article 5 listing a series of rights to be enjoyed without any distinction as of, uh, uh, on the basis of national origin, and, uh, of course, uh, uh, it underlines also that the applicability of the Convention to non-citizens does not mean general equality between citizens and non-citizens. Differential treatment is legitimate if it is objective and reasonable, and also if it is proportional to the aim pursued. Nevertheless, General Recommendation 30 is an important step all the more so that it contains a number of more specific recommendations related to civil rights, expulsion, police, economic, social, and cultural rights. General Recommendation 30 contains also provisions related to the anti-terrorist measures and their impact on non-citizens. Finally, General Recommendation 31, adopted in 2005, on discrimination in the administration of criminal justice reaffirms the applicability of the Convention to minorities, castes, non-citizens, refugees, displaced persons, etc. To sum up, the Committee on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination has progressively expanded the scope of application of the Convention. It has given a broad interpretation of Article 1, Paragraph 1 of the Convention. It has given also a restrictive interpretation of Paras 2 and 3 of the same provision. And uh, General Recommendations 29, 30 and 31 constitute benchmarks in this respect. Uh, they contain a clarification of the relevant provisions and uh, they underline the important potential and relevance of the Convention in contemporary world. Let me turn now to the substantive provisions of the Convention. I would like to underline, first of all, that the Convention on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination is, so to say, a framework instrument. It contains all-embracing provisions. It contains far-reaching obli obligations, but also individual justiciable rights of private individuals. Obligations of states, first of all. Well, there are negative obligations, obligations of abstention, as well as positive obligations, obligations to do something. The nucleus of the Convention is formed by Article 2, paragraphs A and B. Under those provisions, each state party undertakes to engage in no act or practice of racial discrimination and each state party undertakes also not to support racial discrimination by private individuals. Those provisions were quite easy to draft during the travaux préparatoires, but they are very difficult to effectively apply, be applied in practice. Some states affirm that racial discrimination does not exist on their territory. Well, the reply by our committee is that Unfortunately, no state is immune from racial discrimination. 
all the more so that the Convention covers also indirect discrimination. Such affirmation by a state party that there is no instance of racial discrimination on its territory may denote a very restrictive perception of the scope of application of the Convention. Article 2A prohibits racial discrimination by state agents, not only against individuals, but also against groups of persons or institutions. So this element of group protection is present in a number of provisions of the Convention. Article 2A applies to all public authorities, that is, both nationals and local authorities. The state is perceived as a whole. Well, there are some difficulties in respect of federal states, but from the viewpoint of general international law, uh, states cannot invoke their own constitution and internal organization to justify acts or omissions contrary to the Convention. This is a principle of general international law which has been codified by the International Law Commission. So the same principle is applicable in respect of Article 2b. By undertaking not to sponsor or support racial discrimination by any person or organization, states undertake, in fact, not to hide themselves behind individuals and private institutions. Well, such negative obligations are supplemented by positive ones, which constitute, so to say, the other side of the coin. Positive and negative obligations are closely linked in the text of the Convention. Positive obligations form a continuum a continuum for prevention of uh, discriminatory treatment and promotion of integrationist movements to protection against and suppression uh, of racial discrimination. This is a very broad range of such obligations. In the same vein, Article 7 of the Convention implies a series of measures in the field of teaching, education, culture and information to promote tolerance uh, uh, in this respect. The role of media has been repeatedly underlined by the Committee on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination. Also, the necessity to teach uh, in different languages and to provide for such a teaching in the educational system, in some cases. Also, professional training of the police, judiciary, etc. Beyond those provisions on prevention and promotion, the Convention creates positive obligations in the fields of protection of victims and suppression or sanctions against perpetrations, perpetrators of racial discrimination. The most controversial provision of the Convention uh, is Article 4. Under Article 4, states undertake to declare offenses punishable by law a series of acts or omissions including dissemination of ideas attention of ideas based on racial superiority. The committee has insistence, uh, has considered that Article 4 is of capital importance for the implementation of the Convention. Article 4 creates peremptory obligations, obligations of result, has said the committee. Issues related to Article 4 arise in connection with each and every country report. Furthermore, the Committee considers that simply enacting criminal legislation is not sufficient for the purposes of Article 4. It is essential to effectively apply 
those provisions through prompt and serious investigation of alleged criminal acts. CERD systematically asks for information regarding relevant complaints, investigation pursued or penalties imposed. I have to mention, however, the existing reservations or declarations of some states, especially in respect of Article 4a, uh, namely especially in regard of the obligation to punish the dissemination of ideas based on racial superiority or promoting racial hatred. Well, those states which have formulated reservations invoke the freedom of expression. And it is true that there could be, in some cases, a tension between the necessity to combat racial hatred on the one hand and freedom of expression on the other hand, and that there should be a balancing test. We must not forget that freedom of expression, in international instruments at least, is not an absolute freedom. It could be restricted uh, by law. Uh, under the condition that such restrictions pursue a legitimate aim, that they are necessary in a democratic society, and that they are proportional to the aim pursued. So under those conditions, one could arrive to a just balance between those apparently conflicting provisions. Necessity to punish uh, uh, the dissemination of ideas based on racial superiority on the, on the one hand, and the freedom of expression on the other hand. So on the basis of this position, CERD does not hesitate to ask questions about the subject matter covered by reservations, to formulate recommendations pertaining to those matters, to Article 4, even in respect of states having formulated reservations. States, in general terms, do not invoke their reservations to cut short dialogue. So there is a dialogue. Third, invite states to reconsider their reservations. So this is a quite innovative, I must say, and flexible practice which should uh, uh, be taken into account by the International Law Commission in the uh, framework of the work, the excellent work it's doing uh, to uh, uh, codify the issue of reservations in respect to international treaties and especially human rights treaties. Article 4 of our Convention is closely related to Article 6 on effective remedies. Article 6 is broader, however. It covers not only criminal law, but also remedies in the field of civil and administrative law, labor law, etc. There is a positive obligation of states to set up such remedies, either judicial or administrative, and to provide for compensation of, victim, of victims of racial discrimination. Another issue I would like to touch upon is the application of the uh, International Convention Against Racial Discrimination in the private sphere. Well, I said, as all international human rights instruments, does not directly apply in the relations between individuals. However, in order to implement many of the provisions mentioned above, the state has to intervene in the relations between private persons. When we move from obligations of abstention to positive obligations, the distinction between the public and the private sphere becomes almost irrelevant. I said, is the international human rights instrument which most applies in the private sphere.
Another important issue is the issue of affirmative action, or special measures, as we call them. Well, special measures consist of a preferential treatment aiming at ensuring an effective equality, the effective enjoyment of human rights by particularly disadvantaged groups, such as Roma, for instance. Special measures do not constitute discrimination. Special measures have an objective and reasonable justification, that is, the de facto disadvantages of a given vulnerable group. If circumstances so warrant, states have an obligation under the Convention to take such special measures. States have a margin of appreciation, of course, concerning the nature and content of such measures. Special measures should be proportional to the aim pursued. Special measures shall be revoked as soon as the objective pursued has been achieved. They are temporary in character, although they can last for a quite long time in some cases. Well, this is an important aspect of the Convention, the so-called special measures, which shall be the object of a future general recommendation to be adopted by the Committee, hopefully, uh, in 2009. Let me now turn to the issue of the rights of individuals, because the Convention on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination is not only about obligation of states, but also about justiciable rights of individuals. Those rights are mentioned especially in Article 5. Article 5 is in many aspects a self-executing provision, and it contains a non-exhaustive list of civil, political, social, economic and cultural rights. Article 5 presupposes the existence and recognition of such rights. In their practice, in their reports uh, before the committee, usually states simply reiterate their constitutional and legislative provisions guaranteed such rights. Well, the purpose of Article 5 is a little bit different. Uh, generally speaking, Article 5 does not create new rights. Article 5 is about the effective enjoyment of already recognized uh, rights without discrimination. So a number of recommendations in the concluding observations of the committee directly concern Article 5. The same is true about general recommendations on Roma, for instance, on dissent, on non-citizens, on indigenous, on the administration of criminal justice, etc. Under Article 5, to give one or two examples, the committee has stressed the uh, importance of respect of property rights of indigenous peoples, of land rights, of fishing rights, of hunting rights of those peoples. As far as, as, far as political rights are concerned, uh, the committee has underlined, for instance, the issue of the under-representation of minority groups in government, parliament, public service, etc. Article 6 of the Convention. Article 6 of the Convention, I have already mentioned it, it's about a right to an effective remedy. Article 6 is not only about an obligation of states to set up effective remedies, but the other coin, let us say the other side of the coin, is the corresponding right of the individual uh, to institute a complaint, to enjoy this right of an effective remedy. 
This provision of Article 6 is applied in conjunction not only with substantive rights mentioned in Article 5 of the Convention, but also with other provisions of the Convention. And of course, Article 6 is also about adequate satisfaction and reparation of alleged victims of racial discrimination. The form of such reparation depends, of course, upon the nature and gravity of the offence. Article 6 of the Convention is invoked in almost all individual petitions submitted to the Committee. Another important uh, uh, right of individuals under the Convention is precisely Article 14 of the Convention, providing for the possibility of private persons and group of individuals to submit petitions, to submit communications, as we qualify them, before the Committee in Geneva. Today, there are more than 50 states which have made a declaration under Article 14 of the Convention accepting the competence of the Committee to examine such individual communications. However, this procedure is rather unknown even in those uh, 50 states. So there is a usual uh, recommendation by our Committee to those states to publicize the existence of this procedure. There are some advantages in the procedure before the committee concerning, for instance, the admissibility test, the notion of victim, the so-called victim requirement, which is understood broadly in our practice. It concerns not only individuals, but also groups of individuals, including associations and NGOs representing the interests of a group falling under the scope of application of the Convention. I refer myself, for instance, to the case of uh, the Jewish community versus Norway. It was a case decided in 2005 and, uh, uh, let us say, uh, giving this interpretation of the victim requirement. Another advantage of this procedure of individual communications before the committee is the specific approach of our convention in relation to racial discrimination and, of course, the sensitivity of the committee on those issues. The convention contains a general prohibition of racial discrimination, an autonomous prohibition of racial discrimination, not which functions independently of the other rights protected in the Convention. It is not a prohibition of uh, racial discrimination only in conjunction with the rights provided for in Article 5, for instance, but it is a general prohibition of racial discriminations in all fields of public, social and economic life. So I would like to stress the importance and the advantages of this procedure of individual communications before the Committee. Let me now turn briefly, and this is the last point of my lecture, let me now turn briefly to the procedures and the methods of work of the Committee on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination. Well, there have been a lot of changes uh, during the last six, seven years in this respect. The most important aim of those changes is to promote harmonization of the Committee's methods of work with those of other committees. The idea being to create a unified treaty body system, not a single standing treaty body as the former uh, High Commission for Human Rights has proposed, but at least a unified treaty body system. Which this is an issue which was discussed in a number of intercommittee meetings. I have to uh, underline in this respect that the most important task of all treaty bodies is the examination of state reports. 
So we are about to harmonize our methods and to create a more unified reporting procedure. In July, in June 2006, the fifth intercommittee meeting adopted new guidelines for a so-called expanded core document, that is a document to be submitted to all treaty bodies, a document giving general information about the uh, situation of human rights in a given country. This expanded core document will be accompanied by a targeted, a focused report, specific report to each and every committee in relation and in respect to each and every convention of the system. So this is a new methodology of reporting, expanded core document plus targeted reports. And this methodology is applied currently now on an experimental basis, will, it will be reevaluated in due course. An important problem we are all facing, all committees are facing, is the problem of non-reporting. A number of states have a number of obligations in the field of reporting and they do not arrive to, uh, uh, let us say, to report to regularly to all committees. So what is the reply, what is the reaction of our committees in this respect? We have invented, so to say, the review procedure. That is the examination of the situation in a given country without a report, without an official report, on the basis of information uh, from other parts of the UN system, from NGOs, from national human rights institutions, and so on. Under this uh, procedure, we can issue provisional concluding observations, which are sent confidentially to the state concerned, the state concerned is invited to submit its report, and usually it submits it, it, uh, its report, but if not, then those concluding observations become final and are publicized. In the course of the examination of state reports, there is an, an important cooperation of all committees with other stakeholders. For instance, with special rapporteurs of the Human Rights Council, with NGOs, with national institutions for the promotion and protection of human rights. CERD has been a pioneer in this respect. In 2005, during the examination of the Irish report, the Irish National Commission on Human Rights was allowed for the first time to take the floor on an independent basis during an official meeting and to address directly questions by the committee. Well, this experiment became the practice of our committee and it is explicitly accepted as a new method of work in the rules of procedure of our committee. Another parallel aim of the reform of the methods of work is the effectiveness of the committee on the elimination of racial discrimination. Follow-up procedures were introduced by our committee since 2005. There is a follow-up of concluding observations, that is, of recommendations on the basis of state reports, and we have a follow-up rapporteur to monitor all those letters, exchange of letters and information with states. And there is also a follow-up of opinions on individual communications. The aim of all those follow-up procedures is to maintain an ongoing dialogue with the state concern, and there are analogous procedures in other treaty bodies like the Human Rights Committee and the Committee Against Torture. 
In this respect, I would like also to underline the importance of the Human Rights Council and especially of a very new procedure, the Universal Periodic Review, the so-called UPR, which builds on the findings, on the concluding observations, etc., of the different committees. So this is a case of cooperation between independent experts and an intergovernmental body like the Human Rights Council. Another procedure uh, which has been strengthened recently is the so-called early warning and urgent procedure. Well, CERD was again the first to introduce such a procedure already in 1993. This procedure was a little bit dormant for some years and it has been revived since 2005 uh, with the appointment of a working group of uh, five members of the committee. We have adopted also new terms of reference of this procedure and we have currently many, many cases, many, many issues, especially concerning the rights of indigenous peoples. Finally, I would like to mention a proposal coming from CERD concerning the creation of a single body to deal exclusively with individual communications. It is our view that such a body would enhance the visibility and accessibility of the whole UN system for the individuals. Furthermore, this single body would promote the coherence of the case law of all the committees dealing with individual communications. In conclusion, ICERD covers a broad range of issues. The scope of application of the Convention progressively is progressively expanding. The substantive provisions are broadly interpreted. They contain a series of obligations of state parties, but also a series of justiciable rights of individuals. Our procedures need to be further ameliorated. There is also a necessity of a political will to implement the recommendation of all treaty bodies. Let us see whether through the reform of the UN human rights system we can achieve better follow-up to the work of human rights treaty bodies. And let me again stress the importance of the universal periodic review by the Human Rights Council, which could be an important tool in this respect. Thank you very much.